Thanks, Frank. Uh, and I'll be reading our passage for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 7, 6. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures, for the scriptures say, the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God brought, bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person, person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. This is the word of the Lord. Three things we're going to see in that long, involved passage that Frank read from 1 Corinthians 6. God is for the sexually broken, God is for good sex, and God is better than sex. There's one last thing I want to say before we start this, and I should have said it two weeks ago. What we do here on Wednesday nights, this is a sermon and what a sermon really is, if, like what, what's unique to this genre, this is how God speaks through his spirit, through his word, to plant faith in your heart 
or to kindle faith in your heart, to fan it into flame, to grow you and nourish you. That's what happens in a sermon. We open his word uh, and his spirit uses it um, in our lives and in our hearts. But it's a monologue and we don't have a Q&A time. And um, there's not 200 stories that get to be woven into this with all the particularities of your relationship to dating a few weeks ago or your sexual history or present struggles or hopes or desires. And so I just wanted to name that the place that that happens is with the people sitting around you in small groups, with interns, and particularly um, wanted to remind you, Grace, Felicity, and Elliot literally moved across the continent and raised a lot of money to sit across the table or to take walks with y'all and to be that sounding board, to be that wise older voice that can hear your story and maybe speak a little bit of wisdom or hope or prayer back into it. And so you're going to need someone to wade through the devilish details of a topic like this. This will raise more questions than it answers, and you're going to need people real flesh and blood people that you can trust and get to know um, to, to speak to some of those questions. And so just wanted to put that on your radar uh, when the inevitable questions get raised in your heart and your mind by the Spirit tonight. Let me pray, and we'll take a look at this. Father, this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. You love it. You talk a lot about it. Sons and daughters of the living God do not grow up in a family that is prudish, This is the taboo topic, never comes up or awkwardly comes up. Father, yours is a family uh, where you joyfully and wisely and hopefully talk about sex. So thank you, Father, just for being so talkative to us about it. Thank you for not just shooting us out into the world and expecting us to just have to figure it out. It's high caliber. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your hope. And, Father, uh, we need the Lord Jesus tonight because two decades in, we all have history. None of this is hypothetical. This is all real. So, Jesus, please come and, and be a redeemer, be a healer tonight, and not just a teacher. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, this week I came across a quote from Helen Keller that I'd never come across before. You should know who Helen Keller is. If, if you're the odd person out and you don't, she was born uh, in the last century uh, without vision, without hearing. A pretty famous lady's written a lot. But I came across a quote that I found pretty remarkable, and I'm going to read it to you. And when I do, I want you to imagine what these experiences must have been like for her to live. She said, I who cannot see find hundreds of things to interest me through mere touch. I feel the delicate symmetry of a leaf. I pass my hands lovingly over the smooth skin of a silver birch or a rough shaggy bark of a pine. I feel the velvety texture of a flower and something of the miracle of nature is revealed to me. From time to time, if I'm very fortunate, I can place my hand gently on a small tree and feel the happy quiver of a bird in full song. At times, my heart cries out, longing to see these things. But if I can get so much pleasure in mere touch, how much more beauty must be revealed by sight? 
If you closed your eyes or imagined that, uh, this woman talking about what she can sense and even imagine or feel by cupping the trunk of a little tree and feeling the vibrations of a bird in song. She cannot hear that song, but she can feel that song. She can't see any of this, but she can feel it. She can sense it. And it's remarkable how much she has picked up about a world around her that she cannot hear and cannot see. But she also realizes she knows there's so much more out there that she can't perceive, she can't see. And that's why she said, sometimes my heart cries out, I long to see what I can vaguely sense. I want to see it with clarity. How much more beauty would be revealed if I could see what I can sense? Now, the reason that stood out to me is that, I think, is a beautiful description of your relationship, mine too, with sex and even our own sexuality. We can sense and feel whether you have, whether you would say you're someone with, a, with sexual experience or a sexual pastor, you have none of that. We feel and have sensed so much And yet we can still seem like we see, uh, like we're blind. We don't see with clarity. We don't even really know, what is this that I'm looking at? What is this for? What's this supposed to be like? So we can feel its power, but not really understand it or see it with clarity. We feel it every day. But we might not even really know what it is we're feeling. So we're going to dig through this passage in a minute, piece by piece. I know it's crammed in there, and it's a lot, and it's not in language that you and I use very much. But before we do, I wanted to point something out, that Paul, who's the, who's the writer here, the Apostle Paul, um, he's talking to these baby Christians in a, in a Greek town called Corinth. He's talking to them the way you would talk to people who feel but can't see. They have a vague sense. Uh, they, they felt a hundred things uh, through their senses, but they have not yet really seen with clarity. Listen to what I'm talking about. Verse 9, he says twice, don't y'all realize? In other words, can't you see? He says right after that, don't be fooled. Verse 15, he says it again. He says, as it were, essentially says, don't you realize that Jesus' name is written on the bottom of your foot the way Andy's name was written on the bottom of Woody's foot? Because Woody belonged to Andy and was precious to Andy? He said, can't you see that? Don't you get that? It says in verse 16, Don't you realize that God has made sexual intimacy or even made nakedness as glue for souls to be bound together inseparably? Don't you realize that, he says to the Corinthians? Can't you see? He says in verse 19, Don't you realize you're not Motel 6? You're the Notre Dame Cathedral. You're brilliant, you're beautiful, you're sacred, you're majestic as a sexual creature made by God. You're not this cheap motel. And he says, can't you see? Don't you get it? 
He says, don't you know that God himself has listed you as his primary residence? You, and he's talking about you specifically, you corporately, but you with a name, if I could call out all of your individual names, don't you know that you are God's primary residence, a a temple of the spirit of the resurrected Jesus? He's the VIP guest who has come and is never leaving. Look, as a parent, I was trying to think, what are, what are times in life when we say that phrase, like, don't you realize? I can't think of another instance in the Bible where this language is used. Five times in just a couple of paragraphs, Paul says to Christians, can't you see? Don't you realize? Um, usually the time that we speak like this, I think about it as a parent with maybe with Eli or someone, when I have a don't you realize conversation, it's not in a tone of, you idiot, don't you realize? Didn't you get the memo? But it's in a pleading tone. It's it's in a sense of like, if you could only see. Like Helen Keller's friend. Patiently, compassionately saying, oh, if you could only see what it is you sense, what you feel. Those conversations with my kids is is sometimes, um, Eli, don't you know what big brothers are for? And sometimes I'll get him to show me his bicep, and I said, don't you know why God gave you that strength? Not to be a bully to your little brother, to protect him, to play with him. Can't you see it? Don't you realize? That's the tone that Paul is using with people who are friends to him. He liked these people. (laughs) He liked the Corinthians. He'd been to visit them. So five times tonight, I want you to hear this, and I want it to get personal to you. I'm not saying y'all, I'm saying you. Five times tonight, God's going to say to you and wrestle with you, don't you get it? Can't you see what I made you for? Can't you see this, this, these sexual urges, this sexual desire, this sexuality that you feel present, especially right now in your late teens, early 20s? off the charts right now. Can't you see what it's for? Don't you know why I made it? Now, he's not shaming you with a question that he never gives you an answer to. He's going to give you an answer. Praise God. He's saying to us, I know you feel a hundred things about sex, many good, some bad, some full of pain, but I want you to stop settling for just feeling and connecting the dots, just kind of in the dark, like Helen Keller might, just kind of putting the Mr. Potato Head pieces on there, wondering how it goes together, but he's going to say, this is how it goes together. This is how this fits together. I want you to see it for what it really is, and I want you to see you for who you really are, made this way, made sexual, made with this capacity. If you, if you see, so he's asked you a question, don't you realize, can't you see? And he's asking you as an individual, And me as an individual, if you see, if you look, and you see what he's showing you, it will be breathtaking. If it seems like sex is otherworldly from another place, from another world, it's because it is. If it it seems, whether from experience that's left you with, with bad memories of it, or whether it's something that you imagine in the future, if it seems miraculous, it's because it is. If it seems like a little burst of the supernatural in the, in the natural, it's because it is. Which is to say that sex is saturated with significance, which already is the antithesis of what you have been discipled to believe since you were a little itty-bitty kid. Almost 
every song, every movie, every series, every show that we've ever watched um, says, sex is casual, it's just for fun. Have at it, just be safe about it and be responsible. Um, and be on your best behavior, make sure there's mutual consent. That's the storyline that we've seen tens of thousands of times by the time you hit your 20s. It's background noise at this point. We don't even hear it as unique anymore. It's just the way it is. Which means there's, um, which means there's a lot on the line here, too. Um, God has said, Scripture keeps ratcheting up the significance and the power of sex, even as culture keeps bringing it down and saying, it's not that powerful, it's not that meaningful, it's not that significant, but it's really fun. Just be careful with it. Scripture does the opposite. God says it's a taste of heaven on earth, but when it's ripped out of the context heaven gave this gift, it becomes a taste of hell on earth. It's a little taste of heaven on earth, but when it's ripped out of the context that heaven intended it for, it becomes a little taste of hell on earth. The opposite of what it was intended to be. And it's another reason God our Father speaks so much about this. is because he loves you. And he cares about what your life is actually like. So we see all these elements of what we've already said present in this passage. Which is really most of 1 Corinthians 6 in the first part of 7. We see the brilliance of sex. We see the brokenness of sex. We see a lot of confusion among Christians about sex. All of that is present. But we've got to start where Paul starts. We've got to start where he starts, and where he starts is by sorting out um, one important thing at the very beginning of this passage. And here's what he starts this whole conversation with. It's a stark reminder that the kingdom of God is for saints, not for sinners. I said that right. I didn't accidentally flip my words, but you got to listen to how Paul plays this out. And I'm not making that up. Paul said it. Verse 9 and 10, follow along with me. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he bookends it with the end of verse 10. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God? Look in the middle of, of the sandwich. He says, those who indulge in sexual sin, those who worship idols, commit adultery, Male prostitutes, those who practice homosexuality are thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusive, cheats. None of these people. He says, don't fool yourself. None of those people will inherit uh, the kingdom of God. It was passages like this. uh, This was the reason I didn't read my Bible and didn't want to read my Bible in my college years. Because stuff like this is in the Bible. And I didn't know what to do with it. It was scary and it was unsettling. And so I just closed it and left it on the shelf and tried not to think about it. But if we keep reading through verse 11, praise God that paragraph doesn't stop there. Verse 11, Paul tells these new little baby Corinthian Christians, some of you were once like that. The others, he said some of you were once like that. All the others were like something else he didn't list. Some other kind of person who wouldn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, they're all in the same basket with us, dead in their sins, rebels to God, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of the God who's at right, whose right hand holds pleasures forevermore. People who have cosmically settled for the lower option. 
Paul is kind of leveling the playing field here for them, and God is doing that for us too. And he's saying they are like us. They're the same kind of sinners as you and I. They're the same kind of stuck. They're the same kind of holders of secrets, the same kind of holders of shame. They have the same seared consciences. Some of them have consciences so numb they don't register pain anymore. They're the same kind of confused. And we don't have time to do kind of a full field trip through first century Greco-Roman sexuality, but just three little bullet points that'll give you a taste of what it was like. I love the book of first and second Corinthians, and I hope they become very dear to you. They're, they're about the closest thing to our culture today. Um, if, if you were teleported back in time to that, so much of it would feel so familiar. And if one of them was teleported to Athens here today, so much, they would be like, yeah, this is what it's like back home, back in the first century in Greco-Roman culture. Just a few pieces of this, of what culture, what lives were these Christians coming out of? What, what kind of town did they live in when, they, when this letter came up in the mail to them? Um, in terms of prostitution, which Paul mentions um, in verse 9, and he mentions it in verse 16 a couple of times. Why does he mention that? Because it was common practice, socially acceptable, both for men to go to them and for women to go to them. It wasn't even really considered adultery. If you were married and you needed to kind of like keep that sex drive in check, or husband or wife was gone on a business trip for a little while, um, in the 4th century there were 45 brothels just in the city of Rome. That is reaching a saturation level of like bars in Athens, Georgia. 45 brothels in one city. Talk about the demand for prostitution in the Greco-Roman world. Um, Pederasty, I don't know if you've ever heard of that term, but it describes a relationship, a sexual relationship between adult men and boys. That was socially acceptable as a way for men to deal with their sex drive, their sexual urges. Nobody looked, nobody turned a blind, nobody, nobody looked down at that. That was normal. That was a healthy practice. At least for the men, it was seen. Masturbation is not something that was really present in the historical record nearly as much. And the reason why is that's what you asked your slave or your house servant to do for you. You just, and 10% of the population was in some kind of bond service or slavery at the time. So I just want you to, to ask yourself, um, sex that's described here in God's design, which is self-sacrifice and self-giving, and is an act of mutual weakness between two people who are trusting each other, look at what had become. Look at the water that these Christians, these people had been swimming in Look at the habits that they'd been formed by. Look at their practices, not just past but present. Paul's talking about some of these things that they're doing on the day he wrote the letter arrived in the mail. That was first century Greco-Roman culture. That was kind of the water that they swam in, and it grieved God's heart. And my question to you is, how in the world does someone escape that lifestyle, especially when it's not stigmatized? It's normal. It's even encouraged. What happens that would ever catapult you out of that? There's no stigma of like, I want to clean up my life and kind of stop abusing and using people this way. Nobody was saying that. So what catapulted you out of that? What accounted for this comment of such were some of you? Keep reading through verse 11. 
But he says, there was this massive, explosive disruption in this slavish, addictive, deadly status quo. And God did through Jesus Christ what they could not do and would not do with their willpower and their wisdom. And it is the same in every generation since. How do you escape that lifestyle? How do we escape our sexual past and our present, those habits, those addictions, those enslaved patterns, those dark habits that you've never told anybody about, those thoughts you've never told anybody about? How does one get out of that? Can you think your way out of it? Can you practice your way out of it? Can you read enough books to get out of that? We know better by now. It's a beast. Paul says it it enslaves us. The dark side of sex, the distorted side of sex. How does one get out of that? Only by God doing the same thing in you that he gladly did in our friends from Corinth. When there is this explosive disruption of a slavish, addictive, deadly status quo in your own life. Where God does through Jesus Christ what you and I wouldn't do and couldn't do through our own willpower and wisdom. That's the only way to get to the point of where these people are on the day that Paul's letter arrives with them. Paul says this kind of thing everywhere. Romans 6.23 is another place he talks about this, and he says the wages of sin is death. In other words, these people, don't be fooled, um, don't inherit the kingdom of heaven in this state, in this unrepentant, hard-hearted, give God the stiff arm, dead, addicted kind of state. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God, not the result of better willpower, not when God is impressed by how devoted you are or how sorry you and I were, but the free gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. And that's not eternal life that begins one day when you die, but it's eternal life that invades your present life and begins on day one. Life and freedom. So I want you to hear that. Paul started by saying, who inherits the kingdom of heaven? Saints, not sinners. How does one become a saint? By a life well lived? By moderation with alcohol? By not ever making a sexual mistake or having a dark sexual desire? One becomes a saint because God in his mercy resurrects you in your slavery, in your misery, and in your death. He did it to me. He's done it to many, many of you. And if that's not you tonight, he says in here, how could you do that? End of verse 11, by calling out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's delight. It's his expertise. Complete, whole-personed renewal. And I want to just drive home this point before we get into the practicals um, of this. Has he really finished this work in you if you know him? Has he really dealt decisively with that part of you, that this is the way you used to be, such were some of you. Has he really dealt with that, or is that still very much alive inside of you and in your life and in your story? So when you think about what he said in in verse 11, your cleansing from your past and present guilt and shame. Was that a win? Was that a loss? Or let's put a pin in that, still to be determined. Let's see how it plays out. He cleaned you. Did you get dirty again? Is it a TBD for you, a win or a loss? He says after that, um, you have been set apart as special, prized, treasured, a saint, a holy one of the Lord. 
Is that status of you being in Jesus and holy unto the Lord, prized in his eyes, special to him, different than all the others, is that status still in play? Was that a win, a loss, or a TBD, kind of the beach ball on your MacBook? Let's see what happens. You being justified by Jesus and made right with God permanently, was that a win, a loss, or let's see how it plays out. A win, a win, a win. There's nothing TBD about it. There is nothing that God is waiting to see how it plays out in our lives. Jesus accomplished cleansing, accomplished deliverance, accomplished victory. He didn't make it possible if you just take the love he gave you and make the best of it. He delivered you. He accomplished it for you. It was a devastating victory that he single-handedly won for you on the cross. And this is why Paul is able to say in verse 19 something that if you don't hear this in the past few minutes... Doesn't make sense to you. But he says, this is why you don't belong to yourself. How could you? The only reason you and I have a future and have life and have hope or get to experience chapter two of being a sexual creature, get to experience in this life what sexual freedom looks like and restoration and renewal and healing looks like, the only reason is because of his merciful work in our lives. That's why he gets to say, Jesus wrote his name on the bottom of your foot, and boy, does he love you. You don't belong to you, you belong to him. And that's really the basis of the entire ethic, the entire pattern of of gospel sexuality is someone's name is written on you. He is very jealous for you, and he's very protective of you too. Um, One side note, and then we'll get into the practicals. Um, I love... I love that of all the towns that one of the earliest churches um, in history was planted in is Corinth. You know these companies, some of y'all are going to go work for some big uh, corporation, and they're going to do feasibility studies about where's the next location we should put this gas station or this retail store. And they do all these demographic studies, and like, are there the kind of people here with the earning power and the mobility with cars and transportation? Is it rich enough zip code that our business is going to be successful? Are the conditions ripe? For this store to be fruitful. Jesus doesn't ever have to do a feasibility study because Jesus is the only condition that makes a person or a place ripe for complete transformation and renewal. There is no prerequisite in you to experience this kind of change and this kind of hope except the rubble of our sexual brokenness. That's it. Jesus doesn't need anything else. In fact, he delights to go to the people and the places that look the most hopeless. Let's put this Saks Fifth Avenue store in the middle of like rural Kentucky. It's going to be a blockbuster. And it can be with him. You don't need anything special about you for him to see you and want to work in you this way. Just an honesty about the rubble of our own sexual brokenness, which for us in the room tonight includes the rubble of same-sex attraction, the rubble of memories and regrets from a past you can't unexperience or unsee or unfeel. It includes the skeletons still in the closet of porn or masturbation or boundaries broken. It includes the victimization of other people's sexual carelessness with you and all the unnamed stuff that I didn't name. 
That's who's in the room tonight, from the guy on the stage to everyone in the seats. And that's who this hope comes from. We are the saints of God, and such were some of us, but not anymore. Really quickly, does it mean in verse 11 when Jesus, uh, sorry, when Paul says, and some of you were like that, does it mean this night and day difference where none of them, none of those descriptors fit anymore? They're immune from temptation. They're not experiencing any of these desires. If you think that's the case, why is there the rest of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7? Why does he keep saying, but don't you realize? Don't you see? I mean, it's some pretty high caliber stuff. He's like, don't you realize going to the brothel and being with the male prostitute is not a great thing to do when Jesus' name is written on the bottom of your foot. Why is he having to say that stuff if overnight all the temptations are gone, the desires are gone? Jesus says our status is new and our future is new and our hope is new and our freedom is new. But the world is not new yet and it's still filled with all of those temptations and triggers. And that's why there's a rest of this chapter. So I hope you have seen the most important part. My prayer today has been, if you don't get anything else from tonight, it's been the past 15 minutes, not the next 15 minutes. My fear is that some of you, when we begin to get practical, that's what you're going to remember, and you're going to go back on your merry way, just you and your willpower, and you're going to add to the list of the law that you're already burdened by and can't follow. And you're going to be exhausted, and you're going to begin to resent God, and you're going to think that sex is bad and that God thinks it's bad, And if he's for me, why do I feel this way? That's my fear. Gospel is the only road to freedom and hope and restoration. The work of Jesus in you and on your behalf. Only then, when that, don't you realize, has begun to, you begin to see that, don't you realize, can we talk about any of the other, don't you realizes? So, Let's look at those other don't you realizes. We'll see how God is good, is for good sex and how he's better than sex briefly, quickly. He is for good sex and he's very protective of it. But there's a few distortions that were present in Corinth and are present today too. There's overlap between then and now. One of the big pieces of overlap between then and now is this idea that's in the water, in the air. We probably all believe it, whether you grew up in the church or not. And it's this, sex is, a, sex is just a biological appetite. Satisfy it. It's a casual, natural appetite, just like any other. There's two sayings of the day. These would have been cliches of, of that day, kind of like today, love is love. Um, and like any cliche, no one really knows what it means because no one really thinks about it. We hear the cliche, sometimes it rhymes, and we're like, oh, that sounds good, and we repeat it. But then someone says, what does that mean? And we're like, I don't know what that means. And those cliches of their day were things like, I can do anything I want. And then this one about food, which I'll talk about in a second. But this first one was this permissive, casual um, idea that sex, it's just not that big of a deal. It's so present today. But if, you, but if we use a gift of God in a way that it was not intended to be used, especially if it's a powerful gift in, a, in an elevated gift, a significant gift, um, there's a lot of room for danger. Uh, There's a saying, um, the higher the elevation, the greater the risk of a fall, or the greater the danger of a fall. And like I said earlier, Scripture sends sex to the top of the ladder in terms of significance and power. And so if anything, 
that it's not, it's not casual. It also means that we can't have a permissive casual attitude or tolerance for um, sexual immorality or those dark self-serving desires that are in our heart and in our heads. Those aren't thoughts that can be tolerated. So if you ask yourself um, when, those, when those thoughts, desires, lusts, whatever you want to call them, come into your head or into your heart, do you tolerate them as a welcome guest or violently fight them out as an intruder? What would you do in your own house this weekend if some random person shows up? That first instinct, because you're protective of your physical body, is to get them out of the house, not to just sit there and let them chill and be like, let's see where this goes. But to get them out of the house. And the reason um, scripture calls us to, to that kind of action and not passivity with these things, not an attitude of tolerance, but an, but an attitude of get this out of here is because of its power. Verse 12, the second half, verse 18 um, Paul says one of the lies that we believe in sexual sin or in sexual immorality is that we're in the driver's seat and sex is in the back seat. And we're making the decisions. And Paul says, no, no, it's the other way around. It's in the driver's seat and we're tied up in the trunk. We're not the master, master we're the victim. And he says to be careful um, for that reason. This is also why he says in verse 18, run from sexual sin or flee from sexual immorality in your translation if you see that. Um, I don't know if you have ever uh, seen videos or know the name Jocko, but he is a, a former Navy SEAL team leader and he looks exactly like what you think a Navy SEAL named Jocko would look like. Just barrel chested, chiseled jaw, like looks like he could kill you just by looking at you. He said something one time in an interview that I found fascinating because it's so counterintuitive. And he said, the world's most elite fighting force spends most of its training learning how to avoid fights, not win fights. He said, look, if I'm going to my car at night and um, some guy comes up to me and I choose to get in hand-to-hand combat with him, there's so many unknowns. Does he have a knife? Does he have a gun? Is he stronger than me? Or if I actually land a punch, is he going to sue me? Am I going to get arrested? He said, there are so many chaotic unknowns in hand-to-hand combat. We train on how to avoid the fight, whether that's kind of a preemptive strike or how to run. The world's best fighters are the best because they know how to get away from a fight. It is foolish for us to think that we're going to win battles in the heat of the moment, in that hand-to-hand combat moment. A lot of the battles against sexual immorality start when that thought is in embryonic form and we begin to dehumanize a person and use them and objectify them for our own pleasure. We could care less about what their story's like, what their life is like, what their personality's like. All we need is a body and a few body parts to imagine. That's the moment when the battle starts. The battle starts on the way back to his house or to her house after your date. And nobody's home and you're like, hmm, I could go in. That's when the battle is fought. By the time you're already in the house or things progress, good luck. The Bible's ethic is find a way to never be in that situation, not exert superhuman strength in the situation. Flee sexual morality, he says. There's this other cliche of the day that was going on then and it's present now too. He says, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, if you're hungry, eat. It's an appetite. If you're tired, sleep. 
It's an appetite. And if you want to have sex, have sex. Hook up, masturbate, look at porn, fantasize. It's an appetite. It's biological. It's part of our body. And it's healthy to kind of ventilate that. Because if you don't, it's going to build up and worse things are going to happen, the thinking goes. But Paul doesn't accept that line of thinking. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. Sex is not just another appetite like hunger or like sleep um, or like water. It stands in a class of its own. You can't go without food, water, sleep. You can go without sex. Jesus, the true human being and the true man, went without it. Paul went without it. And his joy was contagious to the early church. He says here, husbands and wives can go without it. He says here, um, we'll talk about this next week more, but he says, I wish, some, I wish more of you were single. Challenging, but entirely possible to go through your life without sexual intimacy in a way that you can't with food, with water, with sleep. But that's not the only reason it stands in a class of its own. Um, our sexual desires are not these neutral bodily feelings we feel like hunger, and I want food or thirst, and I want water. They're our heart is interpreting them and distorting them and deceiving us about them. Um, C.S. Lewis has this metaphor in, in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine if you went to another planet. It's not this quote. This will be coming up in just a second. But he said, imagine you go to another planet and um, you, you're walking around and you realize, man, on this planet, people like pay to watch other people eat like a mutton chop, like a, a, a piece of lamb. And all the glossy magazines in the checkout counter are just food. And they're like, oh, it's so decadent and sensual. And you're like, they've eroticized food. And he said, what's your first conclusion that you would make in that little planet? You'd say, wow, y'all's appetites are weird or they're really disordered. You've eroticized food? People go online to watch other people eat food? So he's saying our, 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 our appetites um, for sex, our urges for sex, aren't just these neutral biological things that we need to go satisfy. Something's happened to them. They've been distorted and amplified and warped in a way um, to where we need to be suspect of them. C.S. Lewis says in, in Mere Christianity, he adds another element to this, and he says the monstrosity of sex outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than the, about the pleasure of eating. But what it means is that you must not isolate the pleasure and try to get it off by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. He's saying the taste of food and the nourishing power of food are inseparable. Who chews food and spits it out? The joy of sex and the bonding power of sex are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other happening. And some of us know that personally. What it's like to be naked with someone or to have an experience like that with someone and they leave. And you felt like it took a pound of flesh with them. A piece of your heart. It would, there was a ripping. That's what he's talking about. We can't separate those things so easily. And this is why scripture really says, and, and this will be kind of us winding down here. This is why scripture says the only safe place um, for future sex for single people who are going to end up married if you do, the only safe, healthy, God-honoring context 
for nakedness, for sexual expression is inside of a covenant where somebody has said, I have literally, not romantically, not sentimentally, I have literally given you my everything. I am literally never leaving. I have literally bound myself to you. I have nothing left to give you. Paul says even here, husbands, give over authority of your body to your wife. Wives, give over authority of your body to your husbands. This is not sex as me using you to get pleasure, me using you to get off, me using you to be happy. It's me giving myself to you and you giving yourself to me. And both of us wake up the next morning and know we have the rest of our lives to be together and to grow together and to love each other this way. That's when sex is beautiful. That's when sex and nakedness lead to flourishing. Outside of that, they lead to the opposite, mistrust, broken hearts, hiding and lying and shame. Why? There's two authors, we'll end with these quotes. He says, to say physically that I'm giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from covenanted commitment is in, is in fact to live a lie, a split in the personality which is ultimately stressful and destructive. He's saying expecting to be closer together and more bound together, we experience more distance or more cynicism or a deeper sense of insecurity in the relationship. Mike Mason in a book called The Mystery of Marriage adds to it and he says, to be naked with another person is a sort of picture or demonstration of perfect honesty, perfect trust, perfect giving and commitment. And if the heart is not naked along with the body, then the whole action becomes a lie and a mockery. As a gesture symbolic of perfect trust and surrender, it requires a setting or a structure of perfect surrender in which to take place. Friends, the reason why sex is so important to God and so glorifying to God and impressive to God inside that safe structure of a covenanted relationship and in a marriage is it doesn't just help that husband and that wife know more about what God's love for them is like. It helps the whole world know what God's love for us is like. He is not a one-night stand God who's into you last month but not this month, who is always trying to find a way to weasel out of his commitments to you. He's not a God who flatters you and tells you what you want to hear. He's not a God who uses you and spits you out for his own personal pleasure, but he is literally the God who has nothing left to give you because he's given it all. He is literally the God who has committed himself to you in a covenant forever. He is literally the only one that you can experience this kind of nakedness and vulnerability and trust and security with. And he is our hope for the sexually broken, those of us with a sexual past, those of us with a sexual present, and those of us with an uncertain future. He is our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I'll ask you one more time to do what I prayed earlier is make the gospel the most memorable part of this, the good news that you do not watch us wither in a past we can't undo, in present desires we don't know what to do with but you move towards us and you heal us and you renew us. And thank you that our best days are ahead of us. 
terms of intimacy and vulnerability and nakedness and trust. Thank you. I pray this in your name.